Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Paul Green. Paul is a dear friend of mine. He's a successful working actor. He is an incredible musician, and he's also winning at life. He's one of those humans that every time I see him, being in his presence enlivens me. He is consistent in how he shows up as a father, as a friend, as a partner to his uh, wonderful fiance. And, you know, it's not often that there's folks that I, I really respect kind of how they show up and who they are 360 degrees. And Paul's one of those guys. And so I thought you guys would get a lot of value out of speaking with him. You know, we are currently amidst the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, a lot of people are going through some hard times. And we talk about the medicine of contribution and we talk about um, how we show up and we talk about sort of the inner game of well-being. And I think uh, you're going to get tremendous, tremendous value from from this conversation. I, I know I did. And I think that... Um, yeah, listen all the way through. We, we, we went for about an hour and a half, which is longer than usual. But I was just so in flow and so much uh, enjoying our conversation that I, that I didn't want to stop. So I think you guys will love it. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. As always, you can hit me up at Michael Trainer uh, or tag at Paul Green and let us know your thoughts. And um, as always, please leave a review. Um, it's really helping me to move up the ratings and get uh, great guests and build this community. So I'm very grateful for all your ratings and reviews. And before we get into it, I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, which is One Farm by Wayab. One Farm is my go-to CBD. I absolutely love their products, hand-picked, organic, grown here in the U.S., and uh, really amazing for its anti-inflammatory properties, uh, for its uh, assuaging of anxiety, which uh, has been very helpful for me during these times. So if you guys are keen to check it out, I really recommend it. It's onefarm.com backslash peak, onefarm, O-N-E-F-A-R-M.com backslash peak. And if you put in uh, peak at checkout, you get 20% off your order. And so with that, and without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Paul Green. All right, I am here with one of my very dear friends, Paul Green. Paul, how are you, my brother? Yeah, never better in my life. I am on the day 13 of a 14-day quarantine in, uh, in Vancouver, and I've had almost two weeks just to myself completely. So I, I'm in an altered state, really. It's, it's the first time I've been alone for two weeks straight like that. Yeah, I've been following. So for, for context for the audience, uh, Paul is uh, a father to a, a beautiful son. He also has a fiance who's another dear friend of mine. And they've been in Lake Arrowhead. And I've been watching your evening concerts because uh, Paul's a, a, a phenomenal musician. But I just love, I love that you kind of decided, you know, I think a lot of people, it'll be interesting to reflect on how we spent our quarantines because it's such a, you know, now universal experience. And one of the things that I noted, and, and one of the reasons also I really wanted to have this conversation with you, was I really felt that you took a stand as a contribution during quarantine in the context of, 
uh, every night offering music as a gift. Um, and, and I would tune into yours and then another friend of mine, Amos Lee, who does a weekly concert. And it's been like, I just feel like music yeah. is, is medicine. And the, the comments, just following the comments, for example, I would see you do Facebook Live, Instagram Live. I'd have been watching on Amos. He did his show yesterday. And the uh, degree to which I feel like, especially now, I mean, you know, my background was creating a live, you know, a, a festival, live music event. And knowing now that live music events won't happen until 2022, they're, they're postulating. But I think that that idea of still being able to connect and connect in the living room and to be able to communicate with people through song which is so, so resonant. And I feel like that's, to me, without getting into like all the dynamics, obviously, of the virus and all of that, I just think that what one of the things that's being revealed to us is our inherent interdependence and mm-hmm. our inherent connectivity, right? Because if the breath of one person can impact the livelihood of another on the other side of the world, then we are, dem- we are shown the, the, that, that we are profoundly interconnected and interdependent. And one of the ways in which I think there's such a universal language uh, that, that is the celebration of that interdependence is music. And I just love that you stood as a contribution uh, in your music throughout this time. What, what, has been, what have been some of the greatest sort of realizations and what inspired you uh, to decide to play kind of as a, as a nightly contribution during this time? Well, um, Amos Lee, by the way, is phenomenal. I saw him live, and he actually yesterday did the whole first album, and that's the album that I actually saw him live. And he's he's such a great artist and such a humble. It seems like a humble. Guy. I don't know him personally, but I love his music. Super humble. Yeah, you can kind of tell. He's got a. You can see he's got this. Uh, but he's very very talented. So Amos Lee is. Uh, I actually played one of his songs. I'm at ease in the arms of a woman is one I cover of his. But, you know, I Hallmark, I, so I'm on a TV show for Hallmark called When Calls a Heart, and we're here, I'm here in Vancouver and uh, about to start season eight, and it's a runaway success. There's, there's five million fans around the world. We, we get three to four million live viewers on the show. Like, it's a really, it's, it's, uh, so about that, just before I go into the music, is Michael Landon, who actually created A Little House on the Prairie, his yeah, son, cre- his, his son made our show. So our show is like a little house 2.2.0. Like it is uh, <laughs> 20 years later. So it's set in 1915 and I play a doctor on that show. And so Hallmark, the network asked me if I would play a song before an episode. Cause luckily for our show, it was airing during the, the lockdown when the most, the most intense during March, February, March, when everything was really shut down. And they said, "Do you want to play a song and introduce the the latest episode um, on your on our face or on, on my Facebook?" But then Hallmark promoted it, and I was like, "I don't know how to do one song. I'll do like a, a set." So I did like a half hour set, and that was my first one. And I and the comments and 150 thousand people watched that video, and and there was at 1.5 thousand live like actual viewers watching at once. It was just a really and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" There's there's a huge there's so many people at home first of all and then yeah. and facebook is the way it's set up as widescreen and and i was tweaking with music and i enjoyed myself so much that i was like not only do i enjoy it but the the comments people were like thank you for coming into our living room when we can't go out and i you know i'm answering questions live and and making jokes and doing the thing and i got so much 
out of it for myself. And then I was reading that it was a big contribution to people and a bit nurturing for them while they were cooped up at home to have live concert and very interactive. I would take, I would always do challenges. I'd like, give me a hard song. And then I'd look it up and I'd be like, like erasure, some song from like the eighties. Like (laughs) uh, my brother would send me like Depeche Mode and erasure. And I was like, ah, but I would fail fast and fail frequently and, and fail funny. Like when I make a mistake, I'd just kind of laugh it off and be like, well, I guess I don't know that song that well or, um, but then it just became a thing where I, I did it. I started then training my voice more with a coach every like three day, three days a week. I was doing vocal lessons over the whole quarantine and my voice was just in such a great shape. And then I would do two hours. One of my concerts was three hours long and wow. I just finished my album. So I was, I'm playing songs for my album and every, every session I'd give away a signed uh, CD of mine. Someone would win it on the thing. And then I, there's a company I was working with that would mail it to them. So that's how it started. And I just, just, I mean, it's been, that's been a huge fun, uh, give back, but also it was like a nurturing thing for me during quarantine. I love that. I mean, I feel like it's a little bit like the good news network. I don't know if you watched any of that, but I feel yeah. like, I feel like that Krasansky, it just like took off. And I feel like people are so craving that. I mean, one of the, one of the things, obviously, there's the virus itself, but there's this sort of pandemic of fear, and the antidote and the cure to that, to me, is is music. And I know one of the things that you're particularly passionate about is is gratitude, and sort of, to me, I've been thinking a lot about what are the ways in which we kind of keep our mindset in a good way, right? Like, how do we, how do we navigate these, these uncertain waters? Like I was just thinking about the the metaphor of the Lotus, you know, like the, it's, it it emerges out of murky water. And I think for all of us, we're feeling this context of, 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 of murkiness around us, very uncertain times, you know, 50 million Americans on unemployment. And so there's a lot of, I know, kind of fear in the, in the collective ethos, if you will. And so for me, uh, I know that my best decisions come from a place of center, right? Like of finding that center and, and utilizing meditation and a variety of different tools and techniques. And one of the things that, I, that I've really appreciated about you and about our friendship is I feel like you always hold a, not only center, uh, and that's not to say I'm sure you, you, you have your moments, but you, 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 to me, embody a sense of centeredness and also joy and exuberance. Like I've seen you in times of challenge, still channeling that place of joy and being almost like a signal in the noise for that sense of joy. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and this may be, you know, I don't know to what degree you've thought about this deliberately, but what are the practices or mindsets that you implement in your own life, Paul, to maintain that sense of joy internally and also to be a stand for it in the way that you express yourself? That's a really great question. I'm glad that you see me that way. That is my experience most of the time. I mean, there, there is a, there's, I've decided that living in a beautiful state, like a a beautiful state of mind or a, a high functioning vibe is much more enjoyable than spending time in the lower vibe or lower frequency or complaining or, and it's, it's a choice really. It's a choice to go, and, and then it becomes a habit and a muscle that it's, it, it's, and you recognize if you're out of that beautiful state feeling, you're, you can recognize it and be like, oh, I'm actually choosing to be here focused on 
the the problems rather than focusing on how many things that I have to be grateful for because where your focus goes energy flows so how you whatever you are looking at is where you're going to end up so you know I the some of the practices that there's just gratitude just when I get out of bed and put my feet as I'm making the bed I'm literally saying thank you outside over and over and over again like thank you thank you thank you it doesn't take too many thank yous to move your mind into that place of actual possibility rather than, oh, I got to go do this. I got to go do this. And then I jump on my rebounder and I actually put on like a 15 minute talk of something that I find really inspiring as I'm rebounding and listening to some teachers I like, like Alan Watts or Tony Robbins or David Date or someone that, that I can, that I can get really inspired as I'm jumping. And then I have different morning routines that, that are, for me, it's, I'm a very physical person. So if I'm not moving my body, my mind is not a beautiful place. So like I have to be taking in oxygen. So I have a breath work practice. I have to be exercising and moving. And then my, then it's so much easier to focus on all the gifts that life has. But when we're still, we're not meant to be still like our ancestors were cruising around constantly in survival. Like they're picking stuff up and moving around and not never was what our ancestors be like this watching Netflix or like this ever. So it's no wonder our folks are having overall anxiety and fear and depression and these feelings of, of overwhelm because there's, there's, we're not moving the primary vehicle that could bring us joy and could bring us because it's all connected, right? The body mind connection I find is, is a silly word because the mind is in the body. Like it is, we are mind, we are body. And it's, it, it is so moving my body. I mean, I'll just drop and just do like push ups and then some squats and some things. I stand up and 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 do some breath work quite regularly, like almost on the hour or every two hours, and then drink a big thing of water so that I'm not stagnant because it's just like a swimming pool. If it's not moving like a river, and the the swimming pool gets poisoned and it gets stagnant, and we're all we're seventy percent water. We're so much water that we get stagnant, and when you're moving, the body can then detox properly, and it all affects the state of mind. I mean. So physical movement for me, gratitude is the, the, the biggest thing, focusing on all the gifts that life has given me. Like my son is such a phenomenon of, of generosity and presence and contribution that if I, I don't have to look very far to see how much life loves me, knowing how much this gift that he's given me and my son and in my fiance. I mean, I have a woman who doesn't complain, who doesn't like is, is only thinks about others. She's a business monster. She earns money in her sleep and she loves me unconditionally. So I don't have to look too far to see that life just loves me. And so it stops me from needing to get all this love and acceptance and approval from external sources like social media and, and which, which can create a lot of stress and anxiety and, and insecurity and fear is having external, like I'm needing that love. And I, and I have a tendency for that because I grew up modeling and, and then I chose a business of acting where there's, there's so much of you're being judged and, and you get so much love and acceptance and approval and adoration for your 
outside performance that there's not a lot of focus on the inner work. Um, so I don't have to look too far to find things to be really, really grateful for in my life. But I really feel like that is the practice is, is wherever you focus on, you just get more of that thing. So if you're focusing on everything you're missing, you're just going to get more of that. But if you choose to focus on these phenomenal gifts that life gives us, like family and friends and energy and vitality and that we live in a country that's relatively free that we can actually create businesses like your podcast on like because we have a thought we can like really create it into something so those are the things and you know I I obviously there's moments when I when I go off of the track of gratitude or off of the track but it's not for very long I don't let myself hang out in victim land for very long because it doesn't feel good. And I'm sort of, I'm committed to doing things that make me feel really good. And so I know that moving my physical body and being grateful for things will change my state so quickly that I would rather do that than wallow in a, in a place of victim or focusing on things that are missing. Mm -hmm. I love that. I feel like what you you hit on so much richness there, but for me at least, I think especially given the context of where you come from, right, which are the industries that are perhaps most driven by external validation, right? Like you talk about modeling or you talk about acting, you are largely in an industry that is at effect, right? Like in some ways, you have to wait on other folks to, to to make decisions in order for you to progress your career, quote unquote. And I think so many of us uh, are trained in terms of culturally to both seek validation and seek fulfillment outside of ourselves in the accumulation of things, right? Like if only if I have this, then I'll be that way, which is antithetical to reality. It's actually who we're being that leads to our happiness and from that what we have. But secondarily, I think that notion of shifting and recognizing that that's a false prophet, right? Like to, I was just listening to uh, uh, to Blake Mykoski, the founder of Tom Shoes, right? And he had exited a company, half his, sold half his company for $300 million, right? Which, which w- you would think anyone would be like, oh, heck yeah, let's go, you know, financially free, no more stress, like this and that. And what was interesting is he talked about not in a woe is me way, but like that actually was the point at which he actually had the biggest sense of depression because he no longer had the identity and realized that the external wasn't going to be what, it, what the promise that m- most people are sold on. Right. Like, and I've heard professional athletes talk about this. Like, it's like you win the gold medal or you win the championship and then it's kind of like what next. And so I love that idea of finding the fulfillment inside And having that, the grounding for that, the rooting for that be a place of gratitude, you know? So to me, I I feel like that's taken me a little bit, a a little bit to figure out. Uh, I knew it intellectually, but, you know, moving especially from New York for me, uh, where where you're surrounded, you're kind of in the center of that world of, 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 you know, creating and finance and, you know, it's definitely sort of seen as the access mundi for like, you know, like it's the center of the world when you're there. And though I was in a philanthropic context, you know, surrounded by lots of uh, celebrity, etc., you kind of drink the Kool-Aid a little, or I kind of drank the Kool-Aid a little bit. And um, what I realized, it wasn't until I was with a friend, actually uh, one of my best friends who, who reminds me a lot of you, 
when he was holding his newborn son. And I love that. One of the things I love about you is the way that you relate to your son. And I see you skateboarding or I see you out on the lake. And, you know, he turned to me and he said, and I was, this is in a particular kind of dark night of the soul when I was figuring out what I was going to do after, after my life in New York. And he said, Michael, how do you want to feel every day? Yeah. And it's such a simple question, right? But it was like so profound because I was chasing these hungry ghosts that were the things that society told me would make me feel a certain way. But I didn't, I was in many ways successful, quote unquote, but I didn't feel good. And so I found when I focused out, when I focused in service, when I focused on being a stand for others, that's when actually I started to feel the gratitude that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it led to such a different cascade of events that have created a whole different level of fulfillment. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, that notion of like, that notion of state, that notion of what you do for those who are listening who find it hard. I mean, you have, it sounds like a, a pretty regular practice where you're able to shift out of that victim mentality. I found myself in that. I know many people right now are feeling very much the victim, right? We are very much at effect to something we can't control, right? All of us are right now. Um, and so when you talk about changing your state and being in a place of gratitude, I feel like that's kind of medicine for our time, if you will. Um, but, but what do you feel like uh, it sounds like you've got you, you listed some pretty core practices, gratitude, physical movements, you know, shifting, like shifting energy, using rebounders, using things of that nature to, to shift into state music, I would guess, uh, is 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 a huge practice. Mm -hmm. But when you find yourself in a place of victimhood, when you find and it may not be that often, but for those who are listening that that are in a, in a hard time in their life. What do you do you have any words of counsel on on how one can sort of move into a more beautiful state when they find themselves when it's beyond if you will the rebounder right because sometimes mm -hmm. it's like you know when you're in a good way those little tweaks can kind of get you back right but for those who are because I think that's the piece that mm -hmm. a lot of people mm -hmm. aren't talking about there's a lot of people that are in a sort of a suffering yeah. a depression feeling a sense yeah. of lack of purpose yeah. Um, and I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, not saying you're a therapist or this and that, but one of the things I have noticed about you, Paul, in the years that we've known each other is I do really feel like you've in some ways cracked the code on holding space for that beautiful state. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen it time and again, where wherever, whenever I see you, it may be a challenging time. I still feel like you're a stand for exuberance, a stand for joy, a stand for playfulness, a stand mm. for, you know, I remember, you know, this is a little bit of a you know, weird example, but, you know, we met, we met for the first time uh, in the hot springs at Ecotopia, and I had never met you before, and you were like, come into my home, I'm going to make you breakfast, and like, let, you know, steak. And, I think we made like a steak, you know, you made like a steak and eggs, I mean, we went deep, you invited me to Burning Man, but at Burning Man, you know, we'd rock up three in the morning some people would be in a tough way and you'd be like let me play you some music you know and like i just yeah. remember your i just remember your guitar your guitar to like to 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 get people in a beautiful way at three in the morning you know and all of us kind of in like this kind of cuddle puddle listening to paul play play guitar <laughs> but i feel like that's kind of the stand that you are i mean that's a, that's a symbol uh for 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 the medicine that you bring to the world if you will so for those who are in a in a in a challenging state what would be your words of counsel 
in terms of the Paul Green sort yeah. of magic for, for those who are, who are going through a hard time? So to answer your question, it, it's everyone's so different, right? But there's a, there's a, seems like there's an art to fulfillment and you were touching on fulfillment and there's a science to achievement. Like if you want to make money, there's a formula. If you follow it, you will most likely earn money. There's a formula for your body. If you follow it, even though we're different, there's certain rules with and sciences to to um, achievement. So if someone wants to be, you know, the the best actor, there's a science to certain things you can do. Or acting's maybe not the best example, but there's an art to fulfillment, and it it is. If someone's stuck in a victim place, it usually is that they're thinking and they're suffering because they're focused on themselves. Like that is usually the the key. They're not doing enough for others. And if they are, they're, they're, they might, their motives might be just to like look good or, or, or be seen as someone who's like that way. So like genuinely living your life as a contribution or adding value to somebody is a really kind of highway out of the victim spot or the depression spot or the is we're we suffer when we focus on ourselves we obsess about ourselves so much that we that is we're not designed to do that like we're built to we're like the art of fulfillment really does come from from living your life as a contribution and and adding value and and so because once as soon as you start doing that you, you you get so much joy because you're you're making someone else like maybe it's going to an old folks home and reading the person that never has visited there reading them a book or asking them to talk to you about their life because they have no visitors and maybe they're the most interesting person ever it's it's so that's definitely one way i think the fastest way out of suffering and like that victim spot is to to, to physically get the heck out of your house and and go find a way to add value or to volunteer somewhere or to go to a, a homeless kitchen and go and help serve the food or um, find find a way to have your life actually make a difference for somebody else. Um, and I've found that that's the fastest way through being stuck in a place of that, that feeling. And you get, it's, it's, it's an addiction. Like you, you get addicted to feeling really shitty and you get addicted to feeling really good. And it's like, it's, it's repetition. So if you, if you are, are, if you have, if you're doing things, uh, consistently that bring you joy and other people joy and, 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 and they give you that, that feeling that your life is, is, rockin', you're going to get addicted to that space. And then the depressed space will, will feel foreign to you. So it, it takes a little bit of training and a little bit of time, but man, it is so much, it is a hundred percent the people you surround yourself with. Like if you're trying to improve your life and, and your three closest friends are also like are abusing substances or are constantly complaining or tearing you down with their language or maybe it's a spouse or a or a husband or a boyfriend that is abusive in their language or even physically 
if your environment isn't pulling you forward, you're you're never gonna go anywhere. Like it, you, it's not, we don't do this alone. Like it, it, we're not. We need tribe. We need, like Joseph Campbell said, our society began to fall apart when we stopped living in tribe, and. But if if the tribe that you've surrounded yourself with, you you are the sum total of your five closest friends, economically, um, socially, you know the, their 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 weight. It's just amazing. We water finds its own level. So you, uh, uh, if if your friends around you are not inspiring you and they're dragging you down repeatedly, it is very important to make to shift and 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 create an environment around you that is actually pulling for your success. So those are like, there's, there's, everyone's different, right, Michael? Like everyone has a different upbringing. I wasn't abused by my father. So, but there are people that were abused, like Tony Robin had four dads and he chose to turn that mess into a masterpiece. And it's like, there's people, you know, my dad passed seven years ago and and it, as much as it hurt, it's also been an avenue for contribution. Like I founded ALS.net and helped build a, a several different fundraisers and helped raise a couple hundred thousand dollars for ALS precision medicine research. And is like turning your mess into a masterpiece is like there's people out there that have had it way worse than us for sure. And some listeners listening, they're, they're like, you, you don't have to look too far to find someone that's taken their life. Like Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. Like he, in the Holocaust, he found a way, they mur- they obliterated his family in front of him and put them in gas chambers. And he found a way to have joy in Auschwitz and then came through it and came out the other side telling the story of Man's Search for Meaning. And it's probably one of the best books that there is. So it's like, there's your, your, whatever we're going through, it ain't that. <laughs> 100%. I mean, Victor Frankl is one of uh, my go-tos. If you guys have not read that book, Man's Search for Meaning, it's incredible. I, I also turn to the legacy of Nelson Mandela and think about someone who was in, in prison, couldn't bury his own son uh, when he passed. I mean, I think about, like, you know, the horrific treatment and yet came out... Uh, not only forgiving, which one would have to, but at 80 years old, uh, ready to lead a country in an absolutely, uh, in a, a very challenging state like that. Talk about a challenging state. That was an entire nation in a challenging state. But his internal state enabled uh, a, a flourishing. I love that you. Well, when Tony Robin asked him, how did he survive it? And he grabbed Tony, he says, this big guy goes, I didn't survive I prepared. <laughs> I didn't. I've never heard that story. Yeah, he did. He did prepare. I mean, like his calculations. I mean, if anyone hasn't seen the movie Invictus, I highly recommend checking that out. Have you seen that, Paul? Yeah, it's awesome. But just that level, even. I mean, so they use the one context of the rugby, right? Um, which you know, his idea, his keeping the colors of the, which actually in many ways symbolized apartheid, but he knew that that was integral to creating actually a unified South Africa. So he went against some of the popular opinions because he knew that that was, that was essential. And that was part of his preparation, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't all just like happenstance. Uh, it was very much preparation. And I think, I think part of that preparation to get to the essence of, I think some of what you were sharing I've seen absolutely tangibly in my life when I'm in my shit, for lack of a better term, if I need to turn that shit into compost for new growth, I focus out. 
I go into service. That can be as simple as like I notice if, if I'm like in a bad mood, buying the coffee for the person behind me in line at Starbucks to like what you actually suggested. I did. I did a. a I bought a, a several bouquets of flowers and went to a nursing home. I'll tell you what. You go to a nursing home with several bouquets of flowers and you listen to those folks who are being left by themselves with no one to come see them. It is one of the most beautiful experiences I have ever had. And the degree to which they appreciate you, I mean, that is medicine for the soul, man. So I love that you brought that up. I don't know if I've ever talked about that, but that was when I was in a particularly tough way when I did that. It was one of the most beautiful experiences. Um, And then... Well, this goes back. This goes back to financially too, yeah. right? So, yeah. when you're in a tough financial spot, you actually give your way out of it. So, I watched my dad at a very young age when we had just been robbed two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was everything because my dad invested in a water efficiency showerhead technology, and I was actually I was selling them door to door at like thirteen, fourteen, and I that was my first business is selling these water efficient shower heads. And my dad gave me 50%. And I, so I learned how to deal with rejection, like what worse than a shower head salesman at your door. And so, but then my dad went to Egypt with like a big bunch and they took all the shower heads and never paid my dad. So we, dad comes back from Egypt. We thought we lost him. It's seven weeks. He was there. Uh, thankfully they didn't kidnap him or kill him or something, but he came back and we had no money. So we're used to eating out and my dad is an oil. My mom's a nurse, but we had nothing. And so, and so we'd have to eat from the garden and which was amazing, but we weren't eating out. And, and we went to get, to go to the tire shop and our youth pastor came in and his tires were bald and my dad noticed it. And I watched my dad replace all four of this guy's tires. And I'm like, I knew we didn't have money. And I looked at my dad. I was really young. I was probably 13 or 14. And it impacted me so deeply. And I watched my dad still give at church tithing from whatever money was coming in from the welding and the oil, oil stuff. My dad would still like give 10% always, 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 always. So I decided at a really young age to tithe at 16, even at my first job, 10% of everything I've made from 16 till now has been given back either to a earlier days. It was a church and then it was a different ministries. And now I give to PR ministries, which is a, a guy in, in Nashville who tours with like Bon Jovi and rock musicians to keep them faithful to their wives. And then another portion is like my giving fund that I can do absolutely anything I want in the space of giving. But that I watched my dad give our his way out of a tough spot, and I've used that throughout my life. As it when money goes, because money is can be cyclical for sure, and in times when it feels contracted, the only way out is to actually open and to be and to give and to be generous in in whatever way you can. Financially is a measurable metric, and I've it just works really well. Like I read The Richest Man in Babylon when years ago, uh, 15 years ago, and I've always set 10% for saving and 10% for God or giving, and then 80% you live off of. It's a phenomenal, it's a, one of the most life-changing books ever is The Richest Man in Babylon. But I learned from my dad, from watching him, is that generosity and contribution is also the answer of a financial con- contraction in a hard spot. You don't get more tight you don't get more fearful. You actually open and then you're gifted with more because 
the universe or God can go, oh, I can trust you with funds because when I give to you, I know it's going to go into and be a avenue and, and there's a structure to money and money is energy and it loves to have a structure to it. So the 10% save, the 10% give is such a really powerful structure. But it's just like when your heart closes from being hurt in love, the answer is the hardest thing to do, which is to open and to lean into it rather than to retract and hide and get small and fearful and cut off all the highways to your heart and to your love. It's the same with finance and it's the same with that having the symptoms of depression or having the symptoms of anxiety. Is it just we're miserable and suffer when we get like this and and we're not designed for that. We're designed to, to actually add value to other people's like your experience at the old folks home or at the, the retirement home to bring those flowers. It's a, you'll leave there a different human being. Like you will leave differently. So th- those are some of the tools that I've, and I learned from my father and I'm writing a book, 52 ways to be the dad you wish you had. And there's tools from my dad, tools from my son and my coach, Larry, who passed last year and my other coach, Kathy. So there's these tools That And some of this is in the book about tithing and about, you know, listening to discover, not listening to respond. There's these tools that I'm that I learned from my son and and obviously from my own dad. And it's just a little Ernest Hemingway field guide for dads that dads wouldn't be embarrassed to have in their truck. And it's also a deck of cards because it's 52 uh, chapters and 52 cards. Uh, just a little handbook for dads and some of these tools, especially tithing principles and contribution uh, principles and listening to your children, like in a way that you're not just trying to fix and change your kids. You're actually listening to discover what life is like for them. And then, um, so it's, I, I'm really excited about that. I'm actually working with an editor here while I'm in Vancouver in my two week quarantine and fleshing out the chapters. And it's just bringing so much so much juice and I have a vision for the book to do a prison tour with it because in prison those guys most of the men in prison didn't have a very great role model for a dad and on Mother's Day there's line lineups on the phones to call but there's nobody calls from prison on Father's Day so there's a gap there's a gap in tools for dads especially you know in maybe in some of the prisons and um, so I have a couple connections with some friends who are connected to prison type ministries and I really have a vision that this book would be just a little tool for men who didn't necessarily have a dad who gave them tools like tithing like my dad did and it's a way for me to contribute and give back so there's so much joy and energy and excitement when I'm visioning what this book how how this book is going to live on past my when I die and and God willing for past when you know generations this is something I'm writing creating that could really help people get in more people and more people. So there's a lot of joy that comes from that. I love that. Uh, as someone who's writing his own book at the moment, I think that place is the place at which I think both with money and acts of creation. So I interviewed, I don't know if you know, Stephen Pressfield, the author of war of art, one of my favorite books, but he talks about that context of resistance in any creative process. So when we embark on a creative endeavor, there's always resistance that'll pop up. That's procrastination, distraction, whatever it is. And it's insidious. I mean, it, it moves within your own psyche. So it always knows what your sweet, what your sweet spot is. But yet then there's also the muse or God or, or divine creation or whatever, whatever resonates with you, which is 
ultimately where any act of creativity springs from. It's, it's the source of our art, and we are vessels, in essence. I love the way that you talk about both money and creativity uh, as being, in some ways, a vessel and, and, the, and wanting to create a structure through which that flow can move. Because I think there's a couple things that you said that I just love to sort of highlight. One, you spoke earlier about you know, sort of where, who you surround yourself with and what you surround yourself with. And, you know, the Harvard research actually demonstrates that the greatest corollary to our long-term health and happiness, and I would argue wealth as well, is the, is the caliber of our long-term relationships. So it is very much science is now kind of like research corroborating exactly what you articulated. And then in the context of contribution, I feel like there's so much need for that because the, the, the also research has shown, and I love this because we, you actually are about to jump on a call with a nine-year-old young man who you are mentoring, which I want to get into, but that the greatest contribution one can make in the life of a young man, the greatest contribution, especially in, I used to work in quote-unquote at-risk populations uh, and do some volunteering and work in, for example, the bottoms of East Oakland, which is a, was a pretty intense uh, neighborhood. They always said that the greatest contribution is actually for a young boy or, or girl to have a one positive, consistent role model in their life. That is the greatest uh, impact on the trajectory of someone's life. Ideally, that's a parent. But in the absence of a parent, if someone is willing to take a stand and be that consistent uh, uh, source for guidance... It has the greatest corollary. And I think about, you know, all of us in adolescence made some questionable decisions, you know. And it, without that, without that, like you are to, to Ali, or I'm sure your father was to you in showing you, for example, like the lesson of those tires on the pastor's car. I've seen you with your son, the way that you, you are standing, how you listen to him, right? I love that idea of listening for discovery. One of the principles in my book is, is called being in the listening, right? And it's very much how do we... How do we actually, from a place of not just what the words that someone's sharing, their body language, right? Like what's, what's, be, what's behind the words? What's their tonation telling you? What's their breath telling you? What's their, what, are, what are the ways in which if you're being in the listening, you can fully meet someone? And to me, those are integral to that idea of, of being a stand for someone in a beautiful way, right? Like being another principle I talk about is a signal in the noise, right? And you, to me, are a signal in the noise in, in your music, in how you father. I love this idea of giving. Um, I want to touch a little bit on that idea of fatherhood and mentorship because I've seen this with you in the, how you interact with your son. I always see you like skateboarding or you're out on a boat and, I, and I'm sure you are a father, but you also occur to me to be a great friend to your son. And I... I feel like that was one of the great, you know, for those who are listening, no, I have such a very special relationship with my father. And I feel like he, which I'm not naive to how special that is. And like you said, mo many men, in fact, I would argue most men don't have that uh, relationship and never had that process of individuation to take them from boyhood to, to, to manhood, right? I think that's one of the great things our culture is lacking. Um, but I'd love for you to touch on that idea of, what you feel commensurate with this idea in your book of like how does how how what are some of these other principles that you're that you're extrapolating as it relates to how to be that stand 
uh, as a father for a son in the context of of how we can be beacons of light, if you will. How can we how how we can be lighthouses? Because I know a lot of people are 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 getting lost at sea and having trouble navigating the waters. And prisons, I think, are a great exemplification of that. But for those listening, what are some of the other principles that you've discovered that you think would be really helpful? Well, it all comes down to fear and love. So my relationship to God as you know, growing up was very fearful, afraid of burning in hell, afraid of disappointing God, afraid of the rapture. I grew up very fundamental Christian and my, my relationship that, that translates really quickly to your parents. See, cause your parents until a certain age, they're God to you. So, so I was, there was, and I was only obeying God out of fear and I was only obeying my parents out of fear. There wasn't, it wasn't love motivating. So there's a few and it's all about mentorship. Like you touched on that and you're so right because at just at the right time, when I was a teenager going super off the train, off the tracks, my volleyball coach grabbed me and he's like, if you want to start, I was a setter and I was a captain. He goes, I don't, I, I'm not going to see your car parked at that kid's house. There was a troubled kid and I was starting to hang out with him and, and I was like, okay, I can, I'm going to sit on the bench or I'm going to go hang out at, at this kid's house. I'm like, forget it. I'm going to play volleyball. So I chose volleyball. And he became one of my greatest mentors, Larry Ethier. He's he's one of the mentors for my book. And he gave me a lot of parenting tools that are these short chapters in the book. And he, so he, there's some very, sometimes it only takes one. Like you said, he believed in me at an age where every other teacher and principal was throwing me to the side. He was like, no, you have greatness in you, Paul. And he saw it and made me the captain of the team. And just, I just rose up in athletics rather than running off and doing stealing stereos or something. So, but then at a really crucial point, uh, this woman came into my life called Kathy Martino and she, it's just a, she came through my friend Johan and she was a therapist and we were going through, I was going through a, a separation from my wife, uh, Angie, my son's mom at the time. And she came into my life and we were camping up in Big Sur and Oliver was maybe four, three or four. And he was this little kid and running around the fire and the fire's dangerous and, and we're up in the mountains. And and I was like, Oliver, you got to stay away from the fire. And, and, and he would look at me and then and then he would go back to the fire and I was like, Oliver, like you, you you have to, you can't do, I was getting frustrated. And then he would go over there and then, and Kathy looked at me and she's like, you know, he's only obeying you because he's afraid of you. And I was like, and you're not present, Paul, your foot's tapping. You're, 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 you're here, but you're not really here. And she's like, just do something for me. Take a deep breath, get really present and ask Oliver to come over. And I did, I got present by the fire, big surf. And, and, and she's like, and she helped me and she said, okay, now you're present. She goes, Oliver, that behavior, cause he was going wild around the fire. She goes, and, and she, she taught me a very valuable lesson. She goes, Oliver, we love you. This is what she said. And I learned this from her. We want you to be here with us, but the way you're acting doesn't work for the fire and for our conversation. So if you're going to act like that, the tents over there, you can go in the tent and go totally nuts but that just doesn't work here. We love you. We want you here with us. And if you want to, the tent is there for you to go do that. And so he went in the tent and he zipped it up and he just went nuts in the tent, like in the tents, like going like, wah, wah, like falling apart. And then he, it stopped. It's like an animal stopped and the tent stopped moving. And we're like, 
are you done? And he's like, not yet. And he started like, like going crazy. And then he comes out of the tent and he comes over to me and he lays his lap on my leg and I was just rubbing his head and I started to cry because, and, and she said, see, you're present. You showed him that his behavior, that he wasn't a bad boy for acting that way, but it just didn't work for this spot. So, and you created solutions, solution. She was always like, there's no problems. There's only solutions. That was Kathy. And so she started to introduce me to the fear versus love style of parenting. And, and I stopped spanking him because that was the other thing. I grew up being spanked. So when he was bad, I was like, I guess I spank him. And this was, you know, 12 years ago. And I'd spanked him on the butt and I just hated it. Just didn't feel right. But I grew up with spare the rod, you spoil the child. Like I grew up where spanking was religiously expected of the parents, not like an, it was, it wasn't an option. Like you spanked your kids to, to discipline them. So no, so there was an, also an age where he came back from Sunday school and he's like crying because he was afraid he was going to burn in hell. And that's the last time I sent him to Sunday school in that way. I still wanted to educate him and, and have him grow up with the a love of God and an understanding, but not something that was he was afraid of and that I put over him. And so one night I was tucking him in and he was about five and he's wearing his little Spider-Man pajamas. And, and at that day, Kathy had said, if your kids ever ask you a difficult question, don't give them the answer. Just ask them what they think, because their answer will be much more close to God and much more profound than you could ever make up from all of your dogma and all of your stories. So that night, tuck him in, Oliver looks at me and he goes, dad, what does God look like? <laughs> I'm, like oh. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, what? And I was like, thank, I just, just had had the conversation with Kathy and I was like, well, buddy, what do you think? And we're snuggled in bed together and, and it's just finished reading a story and he looks at me and he goes, you, God looks like you. And I just started crying and I'm like, oh my gosh. So that's another chapter in the book is when your kids have a hard question, always ask them first, what do, what do you think? Because their answer is just so profound. And to him, God looked like dad kind of. And, like, and, and, and I could have robbed us both of a very special moment if I'd been like, well, you know, God is, you know, this man in the clouds with a great beard and he's judging, <laughs> like whatever. That's how I grew up with God. So there's, there's these back to mentorship, like having, and, and for, you know, I'm mentoring, like you said, a nine-year-old and, and I had, you know, I'm a mentor. I like to think to my son and we're now at an age where, you know, there's, there's Kathy or Larry, my coach, who's, he also had me when, when Oliver was having a hard time in first grade. Uh, I didn't know what to do. And I called Larry, mentor. And I said, what do I do? And he goes, well, when I was called to Mozambique to run this international school, he's a principal. Every I was only asked to come in for a year to the school. And the, the, the discipline was so bad in the school that people were being expelled. And, and they, Larry, they made Larry promise he wouldn't change anything in the school system. And he's like, okay, I won't. But then he got there and he's like, everyone's there's, there's no order. So he, he came up with one rule in the school and this is what he shared to me on the phone. He had the kids come up with their own consequences. So when they would 
violate the school's principle, they, they, the order or the, the rules, they would have to come up with their own consequences. And in less than a month, he turned the entire, uh, the, the entire mental economy of the school around into something where they were very responsible for their own actions. So Oliver, here he is in first grade and he was bullying or being bullied and then retaliating. And his mom and I were going through a divorce. I said to him, I was like, Oliver, that behavior is not working. So what consequence, what can you put in place to, to, to stop doing that? Because I know you don't want to do that. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, no skateboard and no food for a month. And I'm like, I'm like all right, we're going to feed you and let's let's back that up. And and so from that day, I've made, I've had Oliver come up with his own solutions or his own consequences to so to not do the thing that I know he doesn't want to do anyway rather than me just dominating him with fear saying if you do that again you're you're I'm taking away your bike and I'm taking away your la da da no so so having that fear to love to answer your question is like that is the biggest most profound gift that I was given was to parent from a place that's motivated from love and and possibility and solution rather than fear and guilt and shame and punishment and torment and it's just a it's night and day oh my god so it's so beautiful to hear you say that man because it's like such it's such an articulation of where i've seen when i'm good and also where i saw like for example with my father where he was good in that when you are operating from that place of love the gift that it is and and the way that it continues to to serve and the way that it empowers, right? And I, I think about so much of our, exactly, like, I, you know, that, that notion of fear is so prevalent right now in terms of the notion of, like, which is a false sense, in my belief, of leadership. But it's so pervasive in terms of the cultural paradigm that we live in, where it's, like, fear and control. And yet what we're seeing is, is uh, in individual relationships and in, in larger, I think, societal contexts, the way that that just does not work. And, and the consequences of a fear-based system in the way that it, that it um, you know, cascades down and, and is in, great, in many ways, I, I, my personal belief is, is sickness. And I've heard, you know, I, I, I have heard, you know, many times the idea of fear and love and kind of everything sort of distills down to fear and love. But I've never actually heard it spoken that way as it relates to parenting and as it relates to mentorship. Well, fear, fear makes you dumb and stiff. Like when I was in India, I did a month motorcycle trip for the highest pass, this documentary and in India on a motorbike is, is very fearful. Right. And, and, and you're at any moment, a, a big truck can come and a truck did hit one of the other riders and another guy broke his foot. And so at the beginning, the first seven days I was in my head on the helmet and it was a month from Rishikesh over to Tibet. And so it's 28 days in my helmet with just my thoughts. And so the first few days is just fear, 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 like who's going to come to get me in India if I'm like under that truck? Like what's what like and, and fear. And, and as I was afraid, I was a very stiff and rigid rider on the mor- motorcycle. And finally, after a few days, I one our teacher, Anand, shared the story of fear and love. And, and I found a picture of my son and I put it on my gas tank. And whenever I'd look at Oliver... I would relax into love and I would, and I would become intuitive and smart. And whenever I was afraid, I wasn't focused on this gift of life and love for me. I was rigid and stupid. I'd made terrible bike mistakes and almost killed myself because I was 
stiff. So fear makes you dumb and, and makes you make really bad decisions where love really makes you smart and intuitive. And we are in a time of pandemic and fear. This is the time to find your love in your heart and to find a way to contribute in whatever way you can. Mine was doing those concerts, but everybody has some way that they can give and and add value. And even if financially you're really, really tight, find some way to give something, even if it's a, it, a little bit, that will... Because it's the way through. It, the way out of fear into love is contribution. And so this is this pandemic is a perfect time for that contraction. Like you open when you don't feel like opening and you give even when you don't have and you're you live your life in a contribution when you all you feel like doing is protecting and surviving. Yeah, man, mic drop on that one. I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree more. And yet. At times, obviously, like anyone, I contract uh, and I get in fear. And then I remind myself that it's like, all right, you know, like, let me move out of this scarcity place. Let me, like, take this off and step back into the stand that I want to be. And I feel like that. But the fact that you noticed it, the fact that you were able to pick up and go, oh, I'm contracting is a huge breakthrough, man. Like, to be even a witness to yourself going, oh, I don't want to be in this space, you, you're able to step back and realize you're having an experience or you're having a thought. But just to be able to catch yourself, Mike, it, it, it is the is the is spiritual growth. And like we beat ourselves up because, oh, I'm not in a beautiful state. But you caught yourself and you're able to then make act, take actions towards uh, moving in that direction. I love that. There's a guy I've got to tune you into that I think you would freaking love uh, that I had on the uh, I had on the podcast. Seek. He's like, I love finding obviously like well known figures, but I also love finding like the secret sauce, if you will. And this guy, his name's Boyd Vardy. He's a lion tracker, and he did 40 days alone in a tree in South Africa. So his to bring this back to Nelson Mandela, when Nelson Mandela got out of prison, they went to his land. Uh, he went to his land, which is the best place in the world to see wild leopards, to to get back into a sort of a you know to sort of ground himself. And so Boyd is they don't hunt the, hunt the lions they they but he he is a tracker and he learned from the the Shango the the tribe local, and he talks about the metaphor of tracking as it relates to our life. And he says there's no such thing as being on the wrong track, right? Which goes to, in some ways to that notion of what you talk about with that judgmental perception of like this, like, you know, guilt, shame, wrongness, right? He said there's only being off track. And the, and the thing in life is, is simply to acknowledge when you're off track and find your right next first track, because that's the path of the tracker is if you can find that first track from there, you find the next track, but it's always like, it's not, it's not about never falling off track. Of course you fall off track, but then you, then you look for the next race. And I love that because so many of the people that I've had the great fortune of, of, of interviewing, what, no matter what, you know, they don't use that particular metaphor, but it's all about that segmenting. I think for those listening and it's like, you know, I don't know if you ever saw Touching the Void of that climber. You're talking about India, where the cl- but this was in Patagonia, where he fell into a crevasse and was left for dead, and his femur broke. And, like, literally 99 out of 100, probably more than that, would, would just give up. And this guy literally climbed down with a broken femur, left for dead, off of, like, a high Andean pass to camp. 
And the only way he was able to do it was he's like, I could only focus on the 10 feet in front of me. Because if you act, if you thought about like, and this, this goes what Navy SEALs called it segmenting, like the most Navy SEALs drop out of budge training, not in the hardness of the arduous physical exertion, but when they're at sunset, when their instructor's like, yeah, you thought that was hard. That was just day one. You got six more days. It's, it's the projection into the future, the fear when everyone rings out, you know? And so I feel like when you can break it down and not get into the projected reality of this massive task, but actually focus on that next first track, focus on that segmented, like what's the next step I can take that's on the right, that's in that path of love, that's in that beautiful, that's in a beautiful way when you feel off track or for me when I get into fear, that's been the best, like of the greatest medicines and tools uh, for me in terms of just like, okay, it's not about like right, wrong. Okay. It's just like, okay, what's the next, what's one thing I can do like that 1% better every day, you know, that, that. Yeah. And when you get, and when you get off track is like, how, how, how much, how can you be kind and gentle and loving to yourself in your mind? Because self love, it is absolutely impossible to authentically love another person if you're inside torturing yourself with, I'm not enough, I'm too much, I, I, I need to be doing this, like it's, it's actually fake. Like it's, it's impossible to authentically love another until you're, you're kind and gentle and loving uh, and generous to yourself in your thoughts on purpose. Like it is, it is, otherwise you're actually out there trying to get love and acceptance from others. Like once this self love is cultivated in a way where you have unconditional self love for yourself, that means like when you get off the path, like you're talking about, you just go, Oh, I'm off the path. Like I'm going to get back on it. And, and it's, you're actually start to create a gentleness with yourself. Then you can actually authentically be kind and gentle with other people. But we're, our mind, we're so, most people's minds are, 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 is a very dangerous place. It, it's very, the thoughts and the, and the, and the, the con, con, conversation in the head is, is pretty aggressive. Like you would never let someone else talk to you that way. And so it's such an art, again, an art of unconditional self-love is catching yourself in those thoughts and turning them to recognizing that you're being mean to yourself because it's really, we really treat others exactly how we treat ourselves inside of our head. But getting back on that path, like you're talking about, I want to listen to that. That sounds like an awesome podcast. Is it's is because we're is is it because we're so worried about finding our purpose when that's a lot of pressure. We don't have a purpose. It's like our uh, life keeps offering all these gifts, so we get to choose a path for a while and and follow that path, and then we obviously lose our way. But it's too much stress to put on ourselves to be like, I need to find my purpose. What do you like? Do you think you only have one? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I spent my whole twenties thinking about that, obsessing about it. Like, and if anything will derail you, it's to obsess about: Am I living like on purpose? Like, is this like is this it? And I feel like we're so we're so multifaceted. I mean, a flower, it's like a flower doesn't a flower just is its purpose, right? It just blooms. It's programmed with this ancestral, you know, it's just part of a greater process, you know, but I, but 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 
I, do, I doubt it would bloom if it was if it had a, a self-reflexive consciousness that had a ruminating on, okay, is now the right time to bloom? Am I the right color? Um, man, I'm pretty close to this oak tree. I don't know if that like is you know, it's like all the like all the mental ruminations that we get in our own way. Yet yet it's that beingness that is our 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 life on purpose. Um, it, but it is easier hard. It's easier said than done. And you talk about self-love, and I will say my New Yorker still, when I hear self-love and my inner critic, the gremlin, as it's called, uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, self-love. This, But I do know that that is the key for me in, in all the things that are on the other side. So I asked myself a question not long ago, and you and I talked a little bit. I, you know, I'm about nine months into not drinking, and I've been asking myself some hard questions like, what are you pretending not to know? And... And a couple things came up, uh, you know, one was like, oh, you know, I get to move into a healthier environment because, you know, and I've talked about that with you. But the thing that was the hardest to reckon with was I know that I get to embrace partnership again, both in romantic and business sense. And part of that is based on uh, breaches in trust, which I processed in, you know, sort of intellectually, but whenever there's a breach in trust, you know, someone cheated on me, I was, you know, betrayed. The deeper piece actually is less the trusting them, but the, the sense of, oh man, I got, I allowed someone to get over on me. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a lack of trust in myself. And so trust to me, actually, if you go deeper than that is rooted in, in that love, that self-love that like, okay, I love myself regardless of if I got off track. Uh, but, but I find that it manifests often in projection, in judgment, in that wanting to protect because I don't want to get hurt again. And what I realized is that that has compromised to a degree, to your point, that self-love, which I think enables that trusting again, which I know the life I deeply want, for example, for me. And I'm, I'm very, very happy but I would, I know that what I would like is on the other side of that trust, which is on the deeper cut, on the other side of that love, such that I feel like I can offer myself in a beautiful way with, with others, right? Like as I see you, for example, with your fiance and son, and, um, you know, that's something I would like to create in life. But I recognize that it's on the other side of that trust and on the other side of that self-love. And I know that many listening, uh, and thank you all for listening to that because that was actually a pretty vulnerable share for me. But I would say I would love to know because I feel like in many ways you hold space for this. What you feel like are, you know, it's funny when we, before we got on this call, I was going to ask you, you know, like, Paul's done like water fasts where like, you know, literally you can go on his Instagram. The guy goes from like, I don't know, he's like a shred. He's like, I'm like, the guy didn't drink anything but water for seven days. Like you, you do, you're doing the coffee enemas. Like you, you definitely like go to the extremes on health, which, which is something I want to talk about. But actually what's interesting is that's intellectual. The deeper cut that I'd love to get at is what are your tenants for self-love for those listening, such as myself such that you feel it's something that other people can apply when they feel like they get off track to get back into a place of self-love? Mm, that's such a great question because I, I, I first would go to a morning routine because if you don't take 10, 15, 20 minutes for yourself, for your life, you don't have a life. You have other people's lives just demanding on you, right? So 
something in the morning that you're nurturing yourself, whether for some, it's, it's, it's carving out a chunk of time that is for you, whether that's meditation for you or breath work or yoga or a walk with your headphones in where you're listening to some great music or, you know, jump for me, jumping on a trampoline. There's, there's, you know, loving your body is a great first step to self-love because if you're neglecting your temple and it's breaking down, you're just not going to feel good. Like if the thing that's carrying your soul around, so to speak, uh, is busted up and flat tires and, and aching and no vitality, you're probably not going to enjoy your day or your experience. So I feel like self-love definitely is a nurturing of the physical body. Like that is a part of it for sure. So Finding out how your body works, it's whether it's finding out your blood type or getting a viome to find out what how your what if what foods you're eating that are making you feel like crap, or 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 being obs- like learning about health and fitness and and being curious about vitality. So those are some ways that I give love back to myself. I get massages all the time. I, I just did a coffee enema. I do ice baths. I do Epsom salt hot baths or, or I lay in the sun for 15 minutes here cause I'm in quarantine and I have a little deck on a bed of nails, this Indian thing that like hits the chakras on my back, like a roll up kind of ch- a Shakti mat. Um, for me and like reading, like grabbing that self-love, like grabbing, reading a biography of like, you know, Einstein or reading a biography of Da Vinci, you're going to see these people and their flaws and where they mentally went off track. And there's just, I feel like reading is nurturing yourself, but there's a bigger piece here is like, cause it's, it sounds almost like, uh, in, in opposition to it, right? You love yourself but the true gift here is giving to others. So like, I got to love myself. This, it, 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 this is where it becomes confusing to people is like, people feel like they're being selfish if their self love has been actually mistakenly uh, morphed into or collapsed into selfishness. And it's, it's so different. You by going to a nursing home like you did with flowers is self love because you're not actually separate from that older woman there that's that's alone giving up the illusion that we're not one is one way to self-love so by loving another person like that's like that type of love you're gonna walk out of there just like oh like loving yourself so much because you you saw in a reflection of another person how freaking beautiful you are like that older woman that you brought flowers to is reflecting back to you your your how divine you are and how wonder and and what a generous amazing soul so it's it 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 comes back to contribution it comes back to putting yourself in a space where you can have the reflection back of who you really are at that level which is love and God's love which is service and self and sacrifice and contribution and and you know some people go you know, they're like, I, 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 I do live my life for my kids, right? Like, so some people, some people are going to be like, I live my life for others. I actually don't live it for myself. But a lot of times people are just concerned that they may have messed up their kids. Like, it's still about them in the way that like some people are, 
Like, they're like, I don't live my life for myself. I am a contribution. All I think about is my kids. And it's like, yeah, you're thinking about how that you didn't do enough for your kids. Or maybe you messed your kids up so much. Like, very rarely are we really in that space of doing things for others. And your example of going to the, the old folks home, and I really hope everybody who listens goes to grab some flowers or grabs a, goes to a, a retirement home and find out who's the person that's the least visited. And you will really quickly see self-love because it's going to be reflected back. And you're no different than that older person. One day we're all headed there. So wouldn't one day, who knows how life works and economics and what if one day we're in a place, wouldn't it be amazing if this young spunky person comes in with flowers or, or sits there and says, tell me about your life, George, like, what have you been through? And as they're telling you their story, you will feel so much love for yourself because they're loving on you. So it's, it's, it's giving up the illusion, Michael, that we're not one, that we're separate, like that we're all connected. I think that's one way for sure. Man, I 100% could not agree more. Uh, I think the morning routine, that's the segment, right? Like that's the first track because, you know, if you, if you win the day, you sort of win, win your life. And I feel like when you start the day right, that makes so much sense. But I think then if you, if you really step into it, you know, if I think about the things that I feel are the exemplifications of love, uh, and to me, I, you know, nature is church. And it's like, I think about, you know, the water or I think about the sun, you know, and we've all heard that, you know, this, the sun, the earth doesn't ask, the, you know, the sun, you know, the sun doesn't ask for anything. The earth doesn't ask for anything. They just give. They're just... A, a relentless contribution without unrequited, without asking for anything in return. And nature is that. And it's all, and we are nature, right? We are a microchasm of the greater macrochasm. And when it's aligned in, an e- in equilibrium and in harmony, it works so, so beautifully in this beautiful cycle, which is based on perpetual contribution, right? Like one thing leads to the, uh, the other. And even the bad... Uh, bad quote-unquote things the hard things turn into compost for new growth right enable you know the shit turns into growth for other gardens and i feel like i feel like that is that is the juice you know like as i as you were talking there i was just like you know i was thinking man this that's it contribution is is the medicine and I know you've got you've got a call with a beautiful uh, nine year old that reached it real quickly. I know you've got just a couple of minutes left, but wh- how did this? You know, talk about contribution. You, you right before we jumped on the call, you're like, "Yeah, I've got a hard out at one because I've got a call with a nine year old." Uh, it's only uh, it's only eleven fifty three, so I have I have okay. time. I have we have time. Okay, to, cool, yeah, cool, no cool. problem. Uh, well, tell tell me about this nine year old because to to the point of contribution and to the point of mentorship. You spoke about this uh, this young man, and I feel like this young man kind of inspired me. I don't even know know him. He's nine years old, but in the context of fully living, I love I love the way that he's showing up. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this uh, this young guy? His name is Nicholas, and and his his they his mom. They, I think they're in Jackson Hole or something, and they run an astronomy group that goes to the top of this the mountain, and they she understands the native the Navajo stories behind the arrangement of stars. So that's the mom. So it starts with the parents and the dad's a musician, 
it starts, I think the parents are very curious and the mom reached out to me on social media and said, will you do a cameo for my son, which is like a video that fans can hire. And, and she, and, and she said, he want he's making sourdough and he wants to know how you made your starter. And he's nine. I'm like, I'm like, your nine year old's making a sourdough starter. Okay. I'm in. So I, I, I did a five minute, my, usually my cameos are like a minute. I think I did a seven minute cameo just going like, all right, this is how I do it. And then they reached out to me again and, and I had shared something and about yoga and then he hired his mom, hired him, my yoga instructor, Noel, uh, on zoom for private lessons three times a week. And this kid's nine and he, and he's also like the lead of a play right now, but he's, he plays guitar and he's, uh, very, really, a really astute student, but his, he found my Instagram and liked my stories cause I shared about health and the thing he's the most interested in is like ice baths and, and, and like cold immersion and, and Wim Hof breathing. And, and, and so, you know, I think there's something in this kid that just saw some tools that I use or like, and he's like, I want that. And so mentorship, like we were talking about before, I feel I feel very inspired to do it, not just because this kid's got the listening for me that's huge, like you talk about being in the listening. And like, uh, just really quick side note on listening, when someone has a big listening for you, you're just a genius, right? So like, if you're you've been in someone in front of you who's not listening to you 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 don't feel very smart or self-expressed you can't access the goods but when someone's in front of you really listening all of a sudden their listening is pulling out of you stuff that you're like oh my gosh I love being around this person because they listen so generously that I'm a genius around them so mentorship's kind of like a really cool way to tap into your genius because you have someone that's really like listening for the gold and listening for what you're really committed to and are, and are willing to apply it and take action right away. And so I, you know, I've had such a miracle of having such great mentors in my life from Kathy to Larry to my dad. And I even consider my son, one of my biggest mentors, uh, that it's a way for me to give back of my time, you know, and, um, and and continue to learn in a way that I, because if you're learning and studying to know you have to then share the information, I think that's what would make a great, you know, that's what makes you a great podcaster too, is you're, you're, you're hungry to learn, but then you also having a mentor, you learn in, in a way that you have to teach. So you learn so much better. Everything I'm learning is because, you know, my uh, Kate and I also have an online course of Life You Love Academy where we take people through mind, body, and connection, and we just finished an eight-week course. And so when I'm learning, I'm learning in a way that I know I'm going to teach it. So there's a much higher level of and a depth to learning because I'm learning knowing I'm going to teach it. And so having men- kids you're mentoring, not just kids, but people you're mentoring, uh, is such a powerful way to make sure that you're, you're learning, uh, the things that you're learning and putting them into action right away. So it makes, I feel like it really builds the, the soul and the intellect at the same time. But yeah, Nicholas is just super inspiring. Um, and I really feel like this, this kid's, you know, he's got the curiosity and an old wisdom to him. That's that he may end up being one of those Elon Musk's or something, or he'll just be Nicholas. He'll be him being him, which is enough. So 
it's, it's cool. I really feel like, you know, having a mentor above you or two, I have several coaches. I have like four different coaches and then people that you're also sharing too is a really inspiring way to learn and then to share and to learn and to share. And then you're not suffering because you're not making your life all about like yourself. I love that uh, structure. I, I've, I've heard that from a variety of other people, but I'm really glad that you put it like that. Whereas you seek, and even the best in the world, Olympic athletes have coaches, right? So like whatever that is that's a mentor for you, a coach, etc. And then also giving to those who are maybe coming up, you know? I love, I love that idea of both receiving and giving and being in that flow. It kind of, again, it, it's that, I feel like this is a lot of what this, the theme of this, this episode has been about, is that notion of being con- a contribution, knowing how to receive, knowing how to be in the listening, and then also being a giver, you know, and, and being in a, in a place of giving. And I think the, the piece that you also mentioned, which really landed well with me, and I think is the key for so many people listening that, that I've seen in the elders, for example, that have been some of my mentors. And uh, like you, I, I have a, a strong reverence for the indigenous and have had really, really profound fortune of sitting with some, some incredible native uh, elders. And one of the, a couple of things that I've noticed is the people that age uh, well, age well because they never give up their curiosity. And I think that is, the, if there's a fountain of youth, it is curiosity. And I think one of the other things I've realized in terms of mentorship and sitting with some of these elders is societally, we often prescribe, right? We give prescriptions. I'm going to tell you what to do. Like, this is what you need to do, you know? And what I find with the elders, for example, when I'm sitting in a sweat lodge, uh, you know, I sat with this beautiful Dine Navajo elder and, you know, he was so profoundly wise, but so profoundly humble. And he would just say, you know, good morning, relatives. And he would share stories. And there's a, there's a movie, actually, which, is, which I love, which you should check out, Paul. I think you would really love it. It's called The Straight Story. And it's a true story of a brother who finds out that he's diagnosed with cancer. And he drives his lawnmower, because it's the only vehicle he has. I kid you not. Drives his lawnmower. I think he was in Iowa for 1,000 miles, I think, up to Michigan or Wisconsin, to see his brother. And he's an old curmudgeon guy, you know, he's kind of a stoic, you know, like handshake, you know, like he goes to buy the lawnmower and he's like, that's a bit high, you know, but okay, that's fair, you know, a handshake, done. He's kind of a, he's a, he's a, but what I loved about him was as he goes through this, on this, this tractor trip, he, he comes across various people along the way, as any of us do, right, in that Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of sense. And there was a young, young girl who had run away from home. And she encounters him on the side of the road with his tractor, and he literally has plywood that he's made up a little sleeping shelter for himself. I mean, it's like a, it's a crazy situation. Uh, and she sits with him, and he offers her like a hot dog or whatever he was eating. You know, it was nothing fancy. And she asks him for a life advice. Um, she had run away from home. I think there was some, you know, I can't remember if she was pregnant or not, but she basically had, was in a place of crisis. And what was interesting was, and I, and I never forgot this, to this day, he didn't give advice. He didn't tell her what to do. But he shared, and this was the case with the DNA elder that I sat with in the sweat, he shared a story 
such that you could find your own answers, like a parable. You could find your own answer and claim it as your own from the story that was shared. And not only you could, but the others that were there from him being in the listening, their body language, kind of like you were talking about with Ollie by the fire, right? Like if you're actually listening, maybe he's not saying something with his words, but you can tell by his energy by the fire that there was uh, prof- that if you're in the listening, that there's, there's a story that can be shared, which is exactly what you did, which was such medicine. And because I just came back to the fire, I want to share this with you because I think you'd really appreciate it. There was a Comanche friend of mine who had shared with me, and this is obviously the fire is the place of, around which most stories are shared, at least traditionally and ancestrally. And he said, people get transfixed by the flames, and the flames are very beautiful. He said, but the power in the fire, the power is in the coals, because the coals keep the fire burning. And in, the, in, in a lot of the Native traditions, the coals are, are, the, are the grandfathers, right? They're the stones that you put on, in the sweats to, that, that enable the story to flourish, that enable the cleanse, etc. And And so I thought it just brought me back to that because I feel like so much of what you shared have been so many of these beautiful stories. And I feel like in the context of mentorship, when I think about those mentors that have been so profoundly consequential in my life, it's they've they've mentored me in their way of being and in their story and less in prescribingly t- telling me what to do. But I, th- I feel like that is, that is the gift that uh, I've seen. And the, and the gift I, for me, at least of this podcast has been connecting with wonderful humans like yourself and, and many others and just hearing their stories. And it's like the mentorship that I receive from that is, uh, is unparalleled and, and hopefully the listeners as well, where it's like, okay, you never know what stories are going to be evoked in the context of the alchemy of two people relating. But it's so uh, powerful and such medicine. And I want to acknowledge you, Paul, because, you know, I've known you now probably five, probably about five years. Um, and, you know, you've been a great friend to me, uh, you know, through those years. And what you, what you, the stand you are to me in the world is a stand for joy, a stand for contribution, a man who uh, who really is 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 in service. Like I I didn't know when I, I I guess I didn't know when I first met you the degree to which your faith had driven your life. I mean that's another fascinating aspect of your story. But like the degree to which you were committed uh, to your faith. And yet, I, as I understand it, it seems like the nature of that faith has in some ways uh, trans, has grown and, and, and perhaps changed. But I feel like your stand for the higher, uh, whatever that means for you, is clear and evident. And you are, you are like a river that enables that, that contribution to, to flourish. And all of us get to drink from that river. So I want to acknowledge you for that. I, I really, I, I receive that acknowledgement, brother. And I, you know, I, there's a, there's a really interesting thing that Jordan Peterson said once, and it really applies like love him or hate him. There's, there's some really interesting things that come out of that guy's mouth, uh, in, in context, if you listen to him for three hours, it's, 
people take sound bites of his stuff and then just make him into a misogynistic pig, which he's not. But anyway, Jordan Peterson said, don't let your kids get away with anything that makes you hate them. And it was a really profound thing. So, so many of us let our children do just run our house and they're terrorists in our own home. But, but that applies to ourselves. Like I, one thing I do is I don't make decisions uh, and that are going to make my life suck. Like, like if, if I think about doing something, I'm like, is that going to act? If that is that decision I'm about to make going to make my life easier to be in that beautiful state what that comes down to eating food that comes down to like if decisions to go hang with certain people that's like is is this thought actually bringing me freedom or moving me towards a beautiful state like it's constantly just making decisions because you know we all have decisions that had we made say years ago with bitcoin or with apple or with this or that like we can all go had i made a different decision my life would be different we are in that moment, every moment to make a decision, just like those decisions that we have 2020 vision on, but we're in the moment. If we're present, we can be like, is this decision going to make my life suck? And if so, don't do it. Like it sounds like the simplest wisdom or the simplest story ever, but don't let your kids get away with things that make you hate them. And don't let your own, your, you don't let you get away with things that's going to make you hate your life. And it's, it's like choosing these decisions that will give you a life that you love. I love that, man. Um, final question. Uh, I want to ask you, because you're, you're a voracious reader. Uh, you, you're a man uh, of many practices. If you were to distill down the top three either books or practices, I'm going to conflate the two for you because you, you, you have both that you would leave the readers with that you feel like could be the greatest gift to their life, the greatest contribution, book or practice, what would those three be? Hmm. Well, there's three books that come to mind just real quick, which is Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, <clears throat> As a Man Thinketh, which is this really, really small book. Um, that's, they're both very old books, but as a man thinketh, and then the richest man in Babylon, they're one's financial, one's sort of spiritual. And the other one, they're both Victor, the, uh, the Victor Frankel book, man's search for meaning is if I had to pick one, that would probably be it. Um, <clears throat> and I know that's three already, but the, let's just put those into the, the book yep. section. We'll call that one. That's yeah, one. That's okay. Um, to find the second is a morning routine of some sort where you where you take time for yourself. Uh, otherwise, you don't have a life. You have other people's lives. So, creating something where you're living your life for a period of time in the morning, I find, is really important. Where you're nurturing yourself, giving yourself self love. You're taking time to educate or read a book or then meditate or a little workout, like a seven-minute workout, which is something I love. So that taking time for yourself in the morning is a profound gift, um, as well as are those books. And then the third is finding some way to be of service. And whether that means you volunteer at a soup kitchen, whether you get on a board of a cause that you really love, whether you're committing and you're putting it in your calendar to call your mom every day, or I, I talk to my mom every day, um, finding some, finding some way to ensure that you're not going to be 
suffering because you're obsessed and focused on your life and making yourself happy. So the, 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 the key, the art of fulfillment is really living your life as a contribution and seeing that reflection back from other people that have how much they love you and how much life loves you because you're able to focus then on all the gifts that life has already given you because you're seeing people that are less uh, well off, so to speak, maybe financially than you or uh, socioeconomically or uh, maybe their health is failing. So you're able to easier. It's easier to see things to be grateful for when you're out in service and seeing somebody who has a lot less than you. So it's kind of the gift that gives back in so many different ways. Not only do you get the love reflection back from people when you go to the old folks home with flowers, but you also you you see how much you have to be grateful for so that leads me to that most important tool which is just gratitude really so beautifully said my man thank you so much for taking the time um where can people find you because I, I i'm sure many listening will want to do so yeah, um, this has been great, man. You do have a really beautiful listening and your questions. Uh, I want to acknowledge you back because you you create a listening that does what I said earlier in the podcast that allows there there you're like you're it's almost like your higher self speaking back to you when you create the space through your listening. And um, I was just with a really wise teacher and I was I was listening so much to everything he was saying. And it was actually creating my body. I was feeling it. And he's like, it's not me, man. It's just you're, you're, it's, it's, you're, you're actually speaking to yourself through me. And I was like, wow, it just, it, it, it leveled me. So you have a really profound, uh, deep listening, Michael. And it's easy. It's really easy to share into it because, because you're listening to discover you're not preloading some witty comment or trying to oh, now I can go here with it. And it's like when we listen from nothing like you have been, it really creates the ability to then create something that that source or grace or life or God spirit actually wants to say through us when we're not up here just going like, I got to be smart. I got to be loved. I got to be intelligent. I got to be witty. No, just like, okay, Let's let's have some space to actually see what God wants to say through us. So that's that's acknowledging you, brother. Um, but I can be found uh, Paul Green official, and Green has an E on it. So Paul Green, there's an E at the end of Green official. In most places like Instagram and Facebook, um, and then uh, Twitter is Paul Green Media. Um, I'm trying to get Paul Green official just to keep it simple. And then uh, yeah, those are the main places. I I, I do a lot of romantic comedy movies that end up on the Hallmark channel. So, and, and then the TV show I'm on is when calls a heart, which airs most uh, Sunday nights also on Netflix. It's on Netflix and Hallmark channel. So those are kind of the places. And I share my heart on my, my social media. I, I get, I, I reply to most comments and most questions and I value my fans as as my tr- almost like a tribe like and I really do I give as much as I can back to them because without them I would have no career self-evident brother I mean I come on and I've w- watched you play your music in quarantine here uh, it's ironic because we live literally just down the street but g- given quarantine uh and you were in Lake Arrowhead I was I watched and uh you're 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 a true stand man you're a true contribution and I, and I so receive your 
your beautiful acknowledgement. So I got a lot, I got a lot of love for you, brother. And I'm so grateful for your, for you taking the time. And, um, yeah, this won't be our last conversation. Uh, I hope not. It's been a real pleasure, man. Thank, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my main man, Paul Green. If you did, um, go ahead and tag us at Paul Green Official and at Michael Trainer, and let us know what you took away. I'm so grateful for you guys listening and for your support of the show. Uh, please do uh, leave us a rating and review. Um, your five-star reviews mean the world to me and are really helping the show to grow in a beautiful way. So I really, really appreciate you. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys are having a great week. And uh, please go out there and live your inspired